Hello and welcome to the Bookmark Podcast, sponsored by the Wallingford Public Library, where we talk about books, culture, and life at the library. My name is Julie Rio. I'm the Assistant Director of the Library, and I like to host this podcast because my mother always told me that I have a face for the radio. And you do. And my name is Cindy Haken. I'm the Reader's Advisory Librarian at the library. I could talk about books all day long, and sometimes I do. Oh, yes, she does. Cindy, today we have to be on our best behavior because oh, no. we have a special guest with us today. Deborah Kwan, who is the Poet Laureate for the town of Wallingford. The mission of Wallingford's Poet Laureate program is to communicate the value of poetry and use poetry as a means to engage, educate, and entertain the community. And Deborah, or Debbie as she likes to be called, serves as an ambassador of Wallingford's vibrant literary life. She's the author, author of two poetry collections, Crossing and Lunch Portraits. Her poetry and fiction have appeared in The New Republic, Boston Review, Fence, The Iowa Review, and many other publications. She has been awarded residencies at Yaddo, McDowell, and the Santa Fe Arts Institute and her poems have been anthologized in the Brooklyn Poets Anthology and Bedford Freeman Worth's Advanced Language and Literature, second edition. She graduated from Princeton University and the Iowa Writers Workshop and is currently on the editorial staff of Poetry Magazine. Welcome, Debbie. Welcome, Debbie. Hi, thank you so much, Cindy, and thank you so much, Julie. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. This is uh, my first podcast, actually. So thank you. We're not that much more experienced. <laughs> I was going to say, we're, we're not that it. <laughs> It's almost like our first podcast. <laughs> Every time it's new. <laughs> so Cindy, what's new at the library? A couple of things are new as we continue to um, get vaccinated. We're very excited that Connecticut is uh, allowing pretty much everyone who wants a vaccine to get one, age 16 and up. And so um, our staff are, are busy trying to get vaccine appointments and get vaccinated, and, and that's making us all really happy. Um, the big news for people who've been calling and calling and calling and wanting to donate uh, books to our used bookstore, the bookseller, is that we are accepting donations at the bookseller of, of books and textbooks, gently used, please. Um, uh, we're not accepting donations of DVDs or CDs at this time. Um, hopefully we will in the future, but you have to make an appointment with the bookseller in order to, to, to make donations, and the donations are on Saturdays only. You can call them directly at 203-284-6451, or you can email them at WLFD, as in, in the abbreviation for Wallingford, bookseller, all one word, WLFDbookseller at gmail.com. If it's easier, you just call us at the library and we'll, tra we'll transfer you down to them. So that's the first piece of news. The second piece of news, in case you missed it, is that the tax deadline this year, both uh, at the federal level and in Connecticut, has been extended to Monday, May 17th. Uh, the library had been um, offering the Volunteer Income Tax Associates use of one of our rooms to assist people with their income tax returns. Uh, and we, we were fully booked for those appointments when the tax deadline was the middle of April. But since it's been extended, our Saturday appointments are now back up. And you can contact 
uh, VIDA, the VIDA people directly to make an appointment. They will also help you virtually if you cannot get an appointment with us in person. So those are the two big library updates I have to share with you, Julie. Those are pretty big updates. I'm telling you, we're swinging. <laughs> <laughs> and Deborah, being that April is National Poetry Month, I know there, uh, there are a couple of events coming up uh, related to poetry. What are they? Yes. Um, so yes, April is the National Poetry Month, and we have a bunch of events coming up this spring that I'm very excited about. Um, we have a series called Poet Laureate Presents, and in that series, we're going to have a reading with Joe Pan on April 21st, a Wednesday at 7 p.m. And in May, we're going to have Arthur Z, um, the Pulitzer Prize nominee and National Book Award winning poet, um, Wednesday, May 12th at 7 p.m. Um, Joe Pan is a poet based in Brooklyn. He is the publisher of Brooklyn Arts Press, which he founded. So he'll be doing a poetry reading and then he'll be talking a little bit about his experiences as a small press publisher, um, what poetry publishers are looking for when they're reading manuscripts, a lot of good stuff. Um, one of his books won the National Book Award, actually, and that was pretty amazing for a very small publishing house. And then Arthur Z, for his May 12th reading, will also be reading his poetry, and he'll be doing um, a Q&A afterwards. Everything will be free and open to the public and on Zoom, of course. Um, in the fall, we'll have another reading with a poet. Uh, her name is Jennifer McKenzie, and she will be following her reading with a writing workshop. So you'll be able to sign up for that if you're interested. And lastly, I will be reading with four other poets laureate from Connecticut, and that will happen April 23rd at 7 p.m., also on Zoom online. So if you're interested in any of those events, um, go to the Wallingford Public Library website and you'll get um, that information all over again. That yeah. is amazing. Amazing. I'm interested yeah. in all of those events, yeah. I have to say. Yes. Sign me up. <laughs> Cindy, what are you reading now? Julie, I love being asked that question. Oh, you know. I know. <laughs> what you know. I've limited, limited myself to two books to talk about with you. Yes. Uh, the first, I just finished reading, uh, what day is today? I just finished reading it two days ago. It's Annie Lamont's new book, Dusk, Night, Dawn. Um, she, Annie Lamont is a very prolific writer who's probably best known for Bird by Bird, which is her book about writing uh, and the writing craft and operating instructions, which is just very, very candid look at um, uh, her son's first year and her first year of being a single mother. Um, and she's written a lot of books about, about her just grappling with life and getting through the days. She's um, uh, uh, a religious woman and um, a recovering alcoholic. And she's very candid about all of those things. And she has an extremely engaging writing style, almost as if she's talking to you. And so I've been a fan of her writing and her books for a long time, but Dust Night Dawn, which just came out, um, is one of my, is I think my favorite of, of her books um, of any I've read for years. Um, really? And she, she, she recently got married at the age of 66 and she talks about what that is like. Um, uh, um, they dated for two years before they got married um, and the experience of finding love at that stage of life and 
and then actually being married to someone and how difficult that is for her in many ways. She, she talks about um, struggling, she struggles about climate change and fears for her. She now has grandchildren and she's very afraid about that. And she con constantly struggles with her, her own demons. This is a recurring issue for her. And she's just so open about it, especially in, in how she's, you know, she's writing, she wrote during the pandemic and all of the things that came out during the pandemic. And I just, I thought it was so approachable and relatable and wonderful. Um, so I wanted to mention that. Well, thank the second you. second book I wanted to share is called No One Is Talking About This, and it's by Patricia Lockwood. Patricia Lockwood uh, is a, um, I should ask Debbie if she knows, if she's read Patricia Lockwood, she's written two poetry yes, collections. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and she's probably, uh, before, before this new book came out, was best known for her memoir called Priest Daddy, which came out in 2017 and was named one of the New York Times top 10 books of the year was a, a, a crazy funny and just crazy book about her Catholic priest father, um, who is unlike any Catholic. Yes, I know the, the quizzical <laughs> look on Julie's face wow. is excellent right now. You can't see it folks, but I'm telling you. Um, Catholic uh, priest father, yes. you don't often well, trust hear me when words. I tell you, you have never met a Catholic priest like Patricia Lockwood's father, so about growing up in, in her household and about the eight months that she and her husband spent living with her parents. Um, it is, it was just sort of jaw dropping. Um, she has a tremendous social media presence, especially on Twitter. And uh, no one is talking about this, takes Twitter on uh, in a way that I can't do justice to. You have to read it. I am not a social media person, as Julie knows. Uh, um, I do have a Twitter account, but I barely know how to use it. And, um, and uh, barely. I, barely underscore, barely. But the, the book um, is about her own growing, not disaffection, but, but um, polarity, I would say, with, with the Twitter platform, even as she um, is out there, was before the pandemic, traveling and speaking at conferences about social media and so forth and so on. And in the midst of her conflict and ambivalence about what, what, what Twitter has become, she gets an urgent call from her mother telling her she has to come home because there's a, an issue with um, her sister, her beloved sister's pregnancy. Um, and the second half of the book is about that. And um, a lot of people before I read it had said to me, the, the first half is really weird, but stick with it because the second half is amazing. And I, I don't disagree with that general synopsis of the book. So I, I'm, I recommend it with that caveat, but um, the writing is unbelievable, unbelievably beautiful. Um, you, can, you can feel the poet in her in the writing. And, and um, there is actually a, a list you can, she references some very, very famous Twitter posts that of course I had never heard of. Um, and so someone has put together a list of them so you can, you can put together these comments she's making in these sort of poetic paragraphs about Twitter with reference to these posts, and then you can go see these posts, and then it, it, it's sort of brilliant what she's doing. And then when she, when she gets into the second half with her family and what's happening with her sister's baby, it's just unbelievably poignant and magnificently done. The, the book um, uh, also just came out, and it's on the Women's Prize for Fiction 2021 long list, and it's just spectacular. And it's not very long either, which is sometimes a plus. So. <laughs>
those are my two, those are my two books that I'm reading and, and want to talk about this month. Awesome. Over to you, Julie. Ah, uh, yes. So spring has sprung, which means that I'm very happily sitting on my deck, reading uh, in the sun, uh, unfortunately getting sunburned, but, you know. <laughs> Uh, so what I decided to read was Let Love Rule by Lenny Kravitz. It's a memoir of the first 25 years of his life. Uh, and the title is taken from his first hit song. Um, he talks about his uh, strong relationships with his parents and his grandparents, uh, his mother who disciplines him with love and his difficult father who disciplines him with anger and control. Uh, he talks, Lenny talks about, uh, we're buds now, so I call him Lenny, uh, <laughs> talks about the fact that he is a true Gemini. Uh, he's half black, half white. He's Jewish and Christian. He grew up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and then also spent time in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Uh, his mu musical influences, he counts as Jackson 5 and Led Zeppelin. So uh, definitely, wow. uh, yeah, true Gemini. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. There was a lot in there about his, uh, the different genres of his musical inspirations, the elements of his spiritual path in life, and uh, some about his uh, relationship with his uh, now ex-wife, uh, Lisa Bonet. And I just, it was an easy, quick read, just something I really needed at that time, just to sit and enjoy the sun and enjoy a nice read. Uh, it was quite entertaining, so Perfect. I recommend it if you are a fan of Lenny Kravitz. Um, and now I am reading uh, Together in a Sudden Strangeness, America's Poets Respond to the Pandemic, edited by Alice Quinn. Um, Alice Quinn is a former, former poetry editor at The New Yorker and a former director of the Poetry Society of America. And this book is a collection of poems from uh, more than 100 American poets. Uh, and they're all talking about their experiences uh, during the pandemic. Uh, and all that that has brought up, uh, you know, both in terms of, of health, in terms of uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, and just everything that has happened, I guess, in the last year. And it's fascinating to read the different poets' accounts of how it has affected them. And it, it's, I, I'm really, I can't, I don't want to say enjoying it because it's a, some, in some cases, horrific uh, topic, but uh, it makes you feel not, not quite so alone uh, in things that you're feeling or thinking. Uh, so it's, it's really touched a nerve for me. And so I highly recommend it. Uh, during this yeah. National Poetry Month, I, I actually meant to take a, to keep a lookout for that. It was in the uh, Book Buzz handouts. Um, uh, I probably put it under other nonfiction, um, mm -hmm. but uh, um, it got a lot of attention that it was that it was coming out that it and and sort of a, a quick a quick response to the fairly quick response to the pandemic in published form. Yeah, well, I guess right after uh, the lockdown happens last March. Uh, Alice Quinn sent out a, a request to some poets that she knew and said, you know, send me what you're writing. And it was first published online. Yeah. And then she had so many responses that they decided to make it into a book. So, yeah. Terrific. 
Yeah, and Debbie, for that what recommendation, Julie? I didn't know. About ah, oh yeah. So yeah. I, will, I will look for it for sure. Excellent. Um, I should say I, I'm mostly. I think it's my turn now, but I. Yes. yes. <laughs> I'm mostly just re- reading the New Yorkers at night um, because I have a five-year-old and uh, almost one-year-old home during the pandemic. I do not have a whole lot of time to read. <laughs> I mostly just try to optimize my sleep time. So as soon as I get into bed, I try to go to bed, you know, or go to sleep as soon as I can. Mm-hmm. But um, I am reading um, and rereading uh, Daniel Borzutsky's The Performance of Becoming Human. Um, it won the National Book Award for Poetry. Actually, it's the book I just mentioned when I was talking about um, Joe Pan. Um, so yeah, Daniel's book won um, the National Book Award for Poetry. It was published by Brooklyn Arts Press, and it was one of the smallest publishing houses, or maybe the smallest publishing house, to ever have a book win that high of an honor. So it's just kind of incredible to me, and uh, a testament to to Joe's editorial acumen, I think. Sure. Um, and it's a book mm-hmm. about. I guess it's. I, I would say it's a book about. Uh, living in our oligarchy at this moment. It's sort of a very dark, um, brutal, almost outre book. Um, A lot of hard moral truths in it um, and a lot of gallows humor. And it's written as basically a series of long prose poems um, or a canticle. And I remember that it courted a lot of controversy when it was first nominated and then when it won, um, because it was nominated in the poetry category, I mean, obviously it is poetry, but because it won in the poetry category um, and it was prose, people, I think, had a little bit of trouble with it. Or some <laughs> people did. So um, yeah, but it's a wonderful book. And I would also like to recommend um, a book that I read, um, I guess maybe a year ago now, um, Kathy Park Hong's nonfiction book, Met, uh, minor feelings in Asian American reckoning. Um, it's an incredibly important read, and especially um, at this moment in time, obviously when we're seeing um, such egregious displays of anti-Asian American sentiment um, across the country. So yeah, it's um, my next door neighbor recommended it to me, um, and I had never heard of it, and I I immediately grabbed it from the library and. Uh, read it it fairly quickly. It was very, very powerful, I thought, really important, really very eye-opening for me. Um, And then I was delighted when it won the National Book Critics Circle Award last week for best autobiography or memoir. So um, it's just, it's, it's a, I I second that recommendation highly. I think it's a, a great book. I'm on hold for it at the library. There you go. Look at that. So as I mentioned before, uh, April is National Poetry Month. Uh, This year is the 25th anniversary. Um, It was started uh, by the Academy of American Poets. um, And it reminds the public that poets play an integral role in our culture and that poetry matters. Their website, uh, the website for American Academy, Academy of American Poets is poets.org. And it's really a wonderful resource to help find information about poems, poets, there are teacher lesson plans, uh, as well as a listing of upcoming poetry readings and workshops. Um, 
So since we have our Wallingford Poet Laureate here today, we were going to talk a little bit about poetry. So my first question to you, Debbie, is can you define poetry? What is poetry? We all know it when we see it, but can we define it? <laughs> I love that you open with the, the most difficult question. <laughs> of course. But I'm, I, I guess I'm the authority, so good thing like... You are the authority in Wallingford on all the poetry. <laughs> yes. Um, so how would I define poetry? Um, I like to think that poetry is intense, concentrated attention on language. And hopefully it's also something that moves you or makes you feel less alone as a human being, um, that possibly illuminates some aspect of your inner life that was otherwise unarticulated or maybe even unknown. Um, what, I, what I love about poetry and what I think is singular about poetry as an art form is that there's basically no money in it. So um, as an art form, it's, it's able, <laughs> yes, and I know this very well, having practiced it for 20 years. Um, so it's able to remain untouched um, for the most part from the forces of the market and of capitalism. So, you know, it can't be influenced by the box office or the studios or the auction house or the oligarchy. So, you know, when you meet a poet that there's nothing in it for them, but the absolute pure love of it. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, it's almost religious because you come to it for no other reason than because you have to do it and you love it. Um, it might even be a curse to be so in love with it, frankly. <laughs> I mean, who knows what it's held me back from? Um, or how much money I could have made by now. But um, yeah, that, that's how I would answer that question, I guess. That's a great answer. I think that's a great answer. That's a great answer. Um, do you, I mean, I, I, Julie knows that I, I, I'm a profound believer in the subjectivity of the reading experience. Um, and so what, what makes something a good book to Julie may not at all be what makes something a good book to me and usually isn't and, and yeah. so forth and so on. Um, <laughs> but do you think that there are fundamentally that there are elements of to good poetry? Yes, absolutely. I mean, apart from, you know, having a striking image or more than one striking image or lyrical musical language in it, um, I like to think that, well, let's define it against prose, right? Because that's what it's different from. Yeah. I like to think that in good prose, every sentence propels you to the next one. So each sentence a writer writes needs to be engaging, exciting, concise, compelling. And so poetry is, is sort of a further distillation of that where every word or phrase needs to do that, be engaging, exciting, concise, compelling, right? right. You need to find the right word at every moment in the poem for it to merit being in the poem. Um, and I, I sort of saw this, um, very practically in action recently when I took a, a prose poem that I had written and I, I broke it up into free verse on the page to see, to see how it would live as a free verse poem. And it led me to completely rewrite the poem because once it was broken up into lines, I saw that the sentences really couldn't hold their own. Um, I needed to put you know, a lot more pressure on, on each word and each phrase. 
Um, which is not to say that a prose poem is any less worthy or easier to write. I, I love pro prose poems and I've written many of them, um, but it's just, a, it's just a different animal and it has its own properties, which you know it shares with prose much of the time. That's terrific. Yeah. Wow, that's just a great, I, that, I, there's so much to unpack in what you just said. <laughs> I have to think about it for a while, but I love what you said. I just love what you just said. Uh, so what poets do you enjoy reading, Debbie? Which poets? Yeah, that's a great question. So many poets. Um, I love Max Ritvo. He was a young poet um, who actually passed away recently. He, he had leukemia and sort of a poetry prodigy and wrote just, you know, poems wise beyond his years in his, in his early 20s. Um, he has a wonderful, wonderful first book out. Um, and Alicia Sotelo, wonderful poet. Um, Jenny George, Jenny Shea, Jericho Brown. I think a lot of people know his work. Um, Ocean Vuong, um, also a poetry prodigy. Um, I think that he um, didn't learn to read until he was like 11 years old or something. Mm. Um, the son of a Vietnamese um, male worker actually um and also has a book called on earth we are briefly gorgeous which is yes yes which is a devastating read. devastatingly yeah. beautiful yeah. read yeah. Yeah. yeah he's incredible um kate bear is a new poet that i really love um she writes she writes beautifully and she's sort of outside of like the poetry inner circle. Um, she never published in any literary magazines or anything. And then just came out with her first book with Harper Collins uh, this past year, just wonderful. And I guess a little more accessible, I think than some of the, some of the other poets out there. And if you're just coming to poetry for the first time, I feel like she's, she's a great one to read. Um, Mary Oliver, of course, absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Um, and some of the first poets I, I first loved were, um, like many teenage girls, Sylvia Plath uh, <laughs> and uh, John Berryman also. Yeah. yeah. Julie, do you have some favorite poets to share? Well, I have to say, I didn't know most of these poets uh, that Debbie mentioned so I'm going to have to look into them. I mean, of course, Mary Oliver, yes. But the other, I guess, contemporary poets I'm not really as familiar with. I go back to the classics. Uh, of course, Emily Dickinson. Uh, I dwell in possibility. Yes. <laughs> and then I have to say, I, I go back to over and over the Nikki Giovanni collection, Cotton Candy on a Rainy Day. For some reason, that came to my life at a time and it spoke to me and as I reread it and reread it years later and then years later all the poems still speak to me but in a different way uh so I think that's mine that's great how about you Cindy um uh I'm still I'm I still read poetry so I'm sort of keeping up with the modern poets but I uh my my probably my all-time favorite poet is uh, um Elizabeth Bishop um, I've, I have ev everything she, she's written. She's written some prose too. And I've also read tons of her biographies and letters. There's a tremendous collection of her letters with Robert Lowell, which, um, which I loved reading. I just, um, every, all of her poems just speak to me in some fundamental 
way. Um, and then there's a, a less well-known poet named Amy Clampett um, who started writing poetry much later in life. And I just, uh, the way she describes um, landscapes um, uh, in her poetry just blows me away. And she, she I, I think she didn't publish her first collection until she was in her 60s and she died, um, I think in her late 70s. And in, in that time, she came out with four or five poetry collections and I have them all. Um, and I've read them and reread them several times. So those are, those are probably my top two. Awesome. So Debbie, we would love it if you would share some of your poetry with us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think I'm going to read three poems today. One great. Yeah. So I wrote this one recently. It's called One Day in America. One Day in America. The fog and the rain this morning are tunneling a hole into my heart. I don't say when I return from the grocery store how again, by some ordinary miracle, I made it, didn't die, how I thought about getting shot at and imagined how I'd crouch, a quivering flesh of imbecility behind the tuber bin, yams rolling past the wheels of my cart. I don't talk about the table of apple rhubarb pies I considered overturning if it came to that, how ready I am to drop to the ground heavy as a frost-laden door. When will it come to that? One day in America, you will ask me. One day when I drop you off at school and smell your matted hair, always imagining this might be the last time, you will ask me. But today is not that day. Today you are safe at home and your father just fed you. And when you catch sight of me, you practice your wave opening and closing your fist in the damp air. Your nose and chin and eyes are splattered with dark red berry puree as you kick your feet in your high chair. And of course, I won't say it aloud. I would never say it aloud. What first impression it made as it tore my breath from my throat. Wow. That's, wow, double wow. Yeah, that is amazing. So I, I think I uh, can imagine when you wrote that, but do you want to tell us when you wrote that? <laughs> sure, yeah, I wrote it, um, you know, after that week where we'd had first the Atlanta shootings um, in the massage parlors, and then there was a shooting in Colorado um, at the grocery store. Um, yeah, and I had to go to the grocery store <laughs> later mm. that day. And of course it was, on my mind and something I couldn't really not think about. Um, and I came home and my husband was feeding my, my baby son and yeah, he had <laughs> red puree all over his face. Mm -hmm. yeah. Took on a whole new meaning. Yeah. yeah. I, I hear when you're reading it, I mean, um, you can hear in the, the pause in the way you're reading the, the line breaks. Um, and it, it just occurs to me to ask you is the, I'm wondering if, how do I ask this question? Um, there's so many words that you must have really, really thought about 
the use of each of those words in that poem. Um, um, like, for example, um, apple rhubarb pies, you know, why, why that or something like that. But are you, do you pay as equal attention to where you break each line? And, yes. And yeah, absolutely. Um, the power of the line break is, is so immense and you want to take advantage of it when you're a poet because that's, you know, that's what you have available to you, especially when you're writing free verse. So I, you know, I usually have two ways of breaking a line. Usually I like the sound. So if I break it after R in the first sentence, the fog and the rain this morning are, I just like the suspense that it kind of leaves you with. Like you're, you're sort of waiting to hear what they are and the surprise comes after, after the break. Yeah. Um, and then in other places, I like to break the line where um, uh, I guess I like the word and I want it to be emphasized. Um, so, you know, dark red later, I'm breaking the line at red on purpose mm -hmm. so that, you know, that image really sinks in. Or, it, or a quivering flesh of imbecility. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That's pretty strong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just, Absolutely. Yeah, break there was good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so would you like to read another one, please? Sure. Yes, please. <laughs> Yeah, this one is called Having a Baby at 43. Having a Baby at 43. Your body is the oldest house on the block now, or so it feels. Its tall frame heaves from the cold push of winter. Coins of moss flake from its shoulders and collect along its feet. You don't need to ask anymore if you are beautiful. As your grandmother once said, go piaoliang la, you are beautiful enough. Take your idle questions to the curb then. So what if the teenage cashier now calls you ma'am or your husband mostly prefers to sleep? So what if the doctors gentled their warnings by bringing their expert mouths close and all you could do was pray while folding your paper gown like a shield across your lap? Good bones, good home, how tired you are, and yet how you serve. Hold yourself in the brightest regard, the quiet chandelier of the cosmos and all its whims reflected in the evening of your windows and in this incomparable creature, the slimmest of all slim chances, whose only planet is you. Beautiful. Thank you. So what was your inspiration for this poem? Dare, Although I dare, know, yeah. dare yeah. we ask? It reads pretty autobiographical. <laughs> exactly. I was going to yeah. say, is it autobiographical? I, I wanted to challenge myself with this um, poem in terms of vulnerability because I don't like to volunteer my age. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was hard being, um, I have, so I had my second child at 43. I had my first at 39. And it was, you know, it was hard to be pregnant over 40. There are so many, you know, actual physical warnings that you will get from your OB about um, what it means for, for your child. And the miscarriage rate is very, very high. Um, all sorts of other kinds of problems are obviously, uh, you're more at risk for them. So there was a lot of anxiety going into it. Um, 
and I still feel a little bit of reservation over offering this information. Um, so when I wrote this poem, I just wanted to challenge myself because I, I thought, what is, what is a poem if not a vehicle to touch other people where they're also most vulnerable? Um, so I was hoping to reach maybe somebody who felt like, you know, they had something shameful or scary that they didn't want to volunteer to the world. And maybe they would feel a little less alone, you know, reading, reading about my, my most vulnerable uh, experience. Wow. <laughs> it, it's a beautiful poem. I, I, what is your writing process like? I mean, does it all spill out of you at once? Or it, do, yeah. you, do you work at it for days, weeks, months? How, how does that work? That's a good question. It's kind of a little bit of both. Um, usually, um, I think a lot of poets will tell you that an image will strike them or a phrase will come to them and that that sort of gets the, gets the ball rolling. Um, for this poem uh, in particular, um, the, the phrase that came to me that got the ball rolling was coins of moss, actually, because um, we do have, we have bits of moss <laughs> that fall off of our um, somewhat older house mm -hmm. and they're on our back porch and they're little circles. And one day the word coins of moss came to me and I was like, oh, that's, that's exactly what they are. Like, that's a great, that's a great line. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I just thought about how the house is older and um, I was older when I, when I had my kids. So um, I, I liked the image of, uh, the house as the body and carrying that conceit throughout the entire poem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm. I I keep I keep coming back to the quiet chandelier of the cosmos. I think that's just an extraordinary line. Mm -hmm. Thank um, you. Yeah, you do have a beautiful way with words. I in reading one of your poems from Lunch Portraits. Uh, it's from Pleasurable Poem, uh, where you say, he, as, he is as beautiful as a nosebleed. That, <laughs> I loved that. That, that really that hit me. So, Thank, you. Thank you. Can you read another one for us? Another poem? Sure. Sure. And this last one's called The Night After You Lose Your Job. The night after you lose your job, you know sleep will dart beyond your grasp, its edges crude and merciless. You will clutch at straws, wandering the cold peopled rooms of the internet, desperate for any fix. A vapor of faith, an amply paid gig perhaps for simply having an earnest heart or keeping alive the children you successfully bore. Where you'd like to know on your resume, do you get to insert their names or the diaper rash you lovingly cured with coconut oil, the bath times you indulged in the name of extending their joy? Where do you get to say you clawed through their night terrors, held them through their sweaty grunting and writhing, half certain a demon had possessed them and still appeared lucid for a 9 a.m. meeting washed, combed, and collared, speaking the language of offices. At last, what catches your eye is posted large font and purple, 
a local mother in search of baby clothes for another mother in need. Immediately, your body is charged, athletic with purpose, gathering diapers, clothes, sleep sacks, packing them tightly in bags. You tie the bags with a ribbon and set them on the porch for tomorrow. Then you stand at the door, chest still thumping wildly, as if you have just won the lottery. And so you did, didn't you? You arrived here at this night in one piece from a lifetime of luck and error with something necessary to give. Yeah. You I, just brought back all of my uh, working mother <laughs> uh, memories from when my daughters were very young. <laughs> um, in that poem, I have to tell you, um, uh, you cannot understand um, how hard it is to have young children and, um, and also a job outside the home um, mm -hmm. until, you, until you live it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's just great. Just great. Yeah. I heard, um, I saw a post today that Biden is uh, signing a, an act to extend relief to caregivers. So that includes um, parents of young children and people who take care of the elderly or the disabled. Um, it's just so overdue that you know, we <laughs> stop taking for granted this, this labor that, that runs our economy and powers, you know, our society. That we, yeah, that we recognize the importance of work in the home, mm -hmm. caregiving work or, yeah, Absolutely. for yeah. sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your poetry with us. Thank you, thank you for letting me read them. That was such a treat. That really was a treat. I have to. I have to ask you. Does does are you exhausted by the process of writing poetry? Or are you are you energized by it? Oh, I'm I'm energized. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm completely addicted to it. So <laughs> it's absolutely. You know, it gives me such highs to to write a poem. I love it. Um, I, I I will say there was a time when you know writing poems was very frustrating. Um, and I also felt like a little bit of illegitimacy as a writer because it seemed poetry was not enough, you know, that I had to write fiction if I was serious or a novel or nonfiction or journalism. Um, so I did all of those, I did all of those different modes when I was younger. Um, but, but ironically, motherhood kind of gave me permission to just solely concentrate on the form that I loved the most, simply because, you know, I just didn't have that time anymore to write longer forms. Um, so it's sort of serendipitous in that way that it was allowing me to, to really concentrate on, on a shorter form, which, which happened to be the one that I loved the best. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Amazing. So do you have any advice for your fellow poetry writers, maybe someone who's just starting out or someone who's feeling as you did frustrated or? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I think 
first and foremost, um, you have to read widely, uh, read promiscuously. As my <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> one <of> my, yes. <laughs> as one of my former teachers. I'll echo that. It's a great, it's a great word. It yeah. is. I it may is. have to use, can I, can I borrow yeah. that? I, I may have to use that. Yeah, That is absolutely. a great phrase. You should credit Mark Levine though. That's who okay. I from. I'm going yeah. to, I think I'm going to use it in, in this next, next week's blog post. Cause that's I'm, a great phrase for a reader's <laughs> advisory library. It is. It's, I'm going to get t-shirts made that say that. <laughs> yes. That would be great on a t-shirt. I, I know. That. I could see that going viral. <laughs> uh, that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, that's we digress. The first thing is to read. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So reading widely helps you develop uh, taste, right? Which is, which is sort of like the foundation of becoming a good poet or a good writer. Um, one of the things I've noticed about um, the writing that beginning poets do is that it's a little bit clipped as if um, they're sending like a telegraph or um you know, some, somehow like the short form is dictating what they're doing. Um, so they'll sort of start with a participial phrase like standing at the edge of the forest, feeling the wind whip across my face, whatever. And then they'll drop the eye um, or else they'll write in a lot of sentence fragments, you know, thinking again, like that's what the free verse line dictates because mm. it's short. Um, and it's, that's just, you know, I think we all start there and it's just sort of a, you know, um, a mark of sort of not being fully in the mode yet. Um, you're not yet using the line break to its full potential. You're sort of letting it um, cut you off rather than um, open, open you up to more possibility. Hmm. Um, and, you know, just getting beyond that just takes time. Um, it'll come organically, reading more poetry, writing more, getting more feedback, and, you know, most importantly, being willing to revise and revise heavily. Um, and then another thing I've noticed a lot um, is that when you're a young person, um, you have a lot of subject matter, you know, especially if you start writing when you're a teenager, you know, there's plenty of heartbreak to write about. There's oh, family teenage angst. angst. To write about. <laughs> teenage <laughs> right? angst. Yeah, absolutely. You I had so a lot much, of that. So much subject matter, right? I think um, I wrote a lot of bad poetry in my teens, Debbie. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. So have we all. So have we all, Julie. Um, but, you know, you just at that age probably don't yet have the skills or the mastery of the craft yet to really write a great poem. And then what happens is you get those skills, you know, you start to master the craft a little bit, but then you lose a little bit of the subject matter. You know, maybe academia intervenes, you know, you go to get your MFA and you start to sort of immerse yourself in theory or ideas or someone tells you like, poetry is not about, about anymore. It's about language, you know, and that becomes your subject matter. Um, I find that it's only in like the third last phase where, you know, craft and your subject matter really come together just because you've lived a little more life, you know, life has thrown sorrow your way or hardship as it does. Um, and then you can marry those two and really begin to develop your voice as a result. And, that's that's when the really good poetry happens. Awesome. Terrific. Thank you for sharing that. And I hope uh, people, your fellow poetry writers who need to hear that, 
uh, take that advice to heart. Thank you. Well, now we're going to switch gears completely and go to our cook the book, bake the book segment. <laughs> and this month, I, I made uh, chocolate dipped brown sugar shortbread cookies. No, you bake, you made something sweet, Julie? I'm shocked. I'm completely yes. shocked. Yeah. Uh, I'm showing Debbie and Cindy in my mouth, the largest tooth in my mouth is my sweet tooth. Um, so yes, of course, I've made something sweet. Um, the recipe comes from Modern Comfort Food, which is the 12th cookbook by Ina Garten, who is the Barefoot Contessa. It's her, it's her newest as well. It's her newest and yes. her 12th, yes. And I enjoy watching her on Food Network uh, her recipes always seems to start the same way, uh, which is three sticks of butter and a cup of heavy cream. <laughs> or a cup of sugar. Or, or a, a cup, cup of sugar. sugar. It's, or two cups of sugar, even. Yes. Uh, and so, yes, uh, very low-cal. Right. Uh, <laughs> but great tasting. But Great oh, tasting. All of them. Delicious. Yeah. So, yeah. So, this one starts with three sticks of butter. Naturally. Uh, and a cup of light brown sugar. <laughs> uh, and then... Vanilla extract and flour and kosher salt and um, now you know you have to obviously follow the recipe and when Ina says do not overmix she's not joking because I overmixed and instead of as the picture shows these cute little finger uh, sized cookies I got these flat. Uh, I don't even know <laughs> what shape uh, cookies, which honestly was fine because after they bake and they cool a little bit, you're supposed to kind of zip them, swirl them into the melted chocolate and butter. And uh, I decided that that was too much trouble. And so since they were flat anyway, I just took one and I smeared the milk chocolate over the entire surface <laughs> of the cookie and made sandwiches. So, you know, you have to make, yes, you have to make lemonade when life deals you flat cookies. <laughs> so this isn't really the Barefoot Contessa recipe. This is, this is Julie's well, no, it was, version. It's, it's Barefoot Contessa inspired but when you follow, when you don't exactly follow the recipe, you kind of have to improvise. And my improvisation is always to add more chocolate. Always. Most of the time. Surely. Sure. <laughs> I, actually, it's interesting because our, my recipe this month is, is similar. Ooh to your recipe and we didn't plan that in advance. Wow. Um, what does that mean? Um, it means we're on so the same wavelength, which that scares is me. Slightly. Very scary, very <laughs> scary. Um, as we record this, it is still Passover. It is Good Friday, actually, and still Passover. Um, uh, for those of us who are craving leavened food, it's not gonna be Passover for much longer, thankfully, but it's still Passover. And every year at Passover, I make, um, Deb Perlman's chocolate caramel crackers, um, which are nicknamed in my house and every by everyone who's ever had them as crack. Um, 
uh, Deb. I knew Cronin. you were going to say that. I yes, knew it. Right, right. It's that's, that's what, what it really sounds like. Them, there's a reason. Um, uh, you don't have to make them at Passover because um, although in the recipe that I made this morning, actually the, the base is matzah, you could make them with, with saltine crackers and they'd probably be terrific, but I've just never done it because to us, they're a quintessential Passover dessert. Deb mm. Perlman is the author of the super popular Smitten Kitchen food blog, and she has two cookbooks, uh, uh, physical cookbooks, the Smitten Kitchen cookbook and Smitten Kitchen Every Day, which are both in the library's collection, um, as, by the way, is Modern Comfort Food by yes, of Tina Garden. Um, uh, this recipe is, it, it, you'll see this. So you, the hardest thing about the recipe is that you have to line a sheet pan with matzah. And if you have ever tried to break matzah to fit it in a certain way, you will know that it doesn't work because matzahs never break the way you think they're going to break or the way you want them to break. <laughs> that is notwithstanding the perforation in the matzah, they just don't break <laughs> that way. So you should have seen me at 6.30 this morning trying to fit broken, badly broken sheets of matzah into my sheet pan. But anyway, once you've done that- You're the just rest not the doing it right, I think. Clearly, I'm not doing it. I'm definitely not doing it right. Turns out really not to matter, but you want it to look perfectly fitted. Anyway. It's two sticks of butter, not three sticks of butter, and a cup of light brown sugar, whisk together and then over high heat and then continue to whisk until it lightens and thickens into a caramel. You add coarse sea salt and vanilla and then you pour it on top of that very perfectly laid out matzah and smear the caramel so that it coats everything. So you can see if you have pieces of matzah it doesn't go well when you're smearing and you have to smear fast because the caramel hardens as it cools. Anyway. Oh boy, that's um, so much pressure. I know it, it works. It's, it's easier than I'm making it sound like you bake it for 15 minutes. When it comes out of the oven, you put a cup and a half of chocolate chips all over it and let the chocolate chips sit for five minutes. And of course they melt in the, cause it's really hot. And then you smear again. And you, so you, you, the melted chocolate goes over the entire thing and then you Lots sprinkle more, of smearing. more coarse, coarse sea salt and then you have to let it cool and then you mm -hmm. break it into pieces and it's now sitting in two Tupperwares in pieces for dessert tonight. Um, but we had a little bit, we broke <laughs> off a little bit. Well, you know, you do have really to have, good. you know, a taste tester. And the caramel, because the caramel acts like glue to the matzo pieces. So that's why it really doesn't matter at the end of the day how mm -hmm. nice your, your matzo pieces are in the pan, but it seems to matter when you're doing it. Anyway, <laughs> Debbie, do you have a recipe? I do, yes. Um, I, I'm so glad that we have this section of the podcast because hearing you guys talk about food reminds me that you both have voices like Faith Middleton of, <laughs> of the Food Schmooze. You have these delicious What a compliment. Voices. Thank you. That is a and huge compliment. You should be on NPR because I could listen to your voices, especially if they're talking about food, like all day long. <laughs> that is too kind of you. <laughs> a lie, I'm sure, but very kind of you. <laughs> now we have to go and listen to Faith Middleton right away and see... <laughs> Um, so I'm going to share a savory recipe since you guys overloaded us with yeah. sugar. That's good. And We're a little bit overloaded on the sweet. Yeah. yeah. This is a very simple recipe and I hear my baby crying in the background. So oh, I tell it to um, this is a simple egg recipe for, um, Chinese or Taiwanese stewed soy sauce eggs. 
And if you've ever had a bowl of ramen noodles, this is the egg that they put on top of the ramen noodles. Um, and I grew up eating them. They're a zillion times better than a plain hard boiled egg. And I swear that once you start making them, you'll never eat a plain hard boiled egg ever again. Mm. And it just takes a couple of ingredients. Um, a, basically you take dark soy sauce, which you can find at most Asian groceries. It's, it's a little bit different than the regular soy sauce because it's just darker, slightly more flavorful. And um, you put hard boiled eggs in dark soy sauce with some water and some spice like cinnamon or star anise, mm. whatever you have. Mm. Um, the recipe that I've included, which is from Angel Wong, I found it on online. Um, she uses five spice powder, which you have to get at an Asian grocery, but I have never seen it. So I just use, <laughs> I just use cinnamon and star anise and it tastes perfect. So I wouldn't worry about that. And then you just, um, you just let it steep like on low heat for like 15 minutes. And then you can store the eggs for like a week in the fridge and they're just absolutely delicious. And now essentially it's like double boiling the eggs because you take the hard boiled eggs, you deshell them and then you steep them in the soy sauce. Yeah. So, I mean, does that make the, the inner tough or does the soy sauce, uh, you know, make it softer or not make it as tough, the, the yellow part, I guess. The well, the second part. time, when, when you put the um, hard-boiled de-shelled eggs in, you're not going to bring it to a boil. Yeah, you're just sort of doing it on low heat. Okay. Um, if you like it, if you like the yolk a little soft-boiled, then you could use, you could start with like a soft-boiled egg. Mm. It won't get as hard in the middle. Um, but yeah, it does get a little bit hard, but it's still really tasty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I know what I'm trying this weekend. <laughs> yeah, really, that sounds great. Yeah. Delicious. Fabulous. Thank you for sharing that with us. Absolutely. We'll have to get away from our sweet tooth, perhaps. Or my <laughs> for sweet a day. Tooth. Maybe for a day. <laughs> and can you believe that our time is up? Oh, it went by so fast. It always goes by I so fast. Oh, it does. Oh, goodness. Well, thank you all for listening to the Bookmark Podcast. Please check the show notes for a list of the books, authors, and websites we talked about. And subscribe to the Bookmark uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll know when a new episode is available. And visit the library's website at wallingfordlibrary.org for more information about the library, our upcoming events, and how to contact us. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to Debbie Kwan for joining us today. It was a real treat to have you here. It really was, Debbie. Thank oh, you so thank much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a pleasure, and meeting you both has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank for us, you. too. Thank you. And as always, thank you, Cindy. You're welcome, Julie. <laughs> now, say goodbye, Cindy. Goodbye, Cindy.